Well, it's good to see you today. Hope you're having a great day so far. It's always good to have our kids sing, and I always consider it a win if none of them fall off stage, so a big win today. Um, Japan, our partners in Japan, my nephew is one of the church planters at Mustard Seed in Japan, and you did hear that right, that one, less than 1% of those who live in Japan are followers of Christ, are Christians. And so they had been praying about doing a big Christmas program this season to try to reach out into their people and just found out last weekend they had 300 people come to their Christmas program. This, this last night um, would have been Sunday for them. Almost 400 came to their Christmas program and they have another one this next weekend and the weekend after. So just great, great stuff that's happening there and our partners in Japan. And so before we jump in, just want to let you know about a couple things. We're in the middle of our Christmas give. Thank you for your generosity to our kids in this valley and families at this church. And throughout the month of December, we are receiving a Christmas offering. And this has been a great ministry here um, year at the crossing. We have reached more people this year than in the history of the crossing. We've had 543 people baptized in this past year. We've had 2,200 people who are part of a small group during the Transform series. Hundreds have gone on a global mission trip. We launched Celebrate Recovery this year, helping people find recovery through Christ and uh, getting rid of some of these addictions that have been um, grabbing a hold of them. And as we move into 2017, we have a vision of what God could use us to do and how God can impact us. And our Christmas offering helps us strengthen our strengthen our local ministry, but also to impact our community partners. And three of our initiatives that the Christmas offering is going to be going to, number one is our children's building. We are going to start construction on revamping that entire venue in February. And so we're going to be able to create more space for our kids that are coming and better environments for them. And so part of the Christmas offering will go to make sure that we can get that to the finish line. Part of the Christmas offering is going to go to our Southeast campus. Also in February, we launch our first campus outside of this place right here as we try to reach out to a different part of the valley and their significant needs. We have to buy everything. We have to buy um, chairs and stage and sound and lights and cribs and toys and all the things that go into making a church service work so we can reach them. So part of the Christmas offering will go towards that. And then part of it's going to go to our community partners. And our focus this year is the homeless. And so we're partnering with Family Promise that they help um, homeless families get back on their feet. We're partnering with them. And we're partnering with Project 150, which uh, helps homeless teenagers. And so here's my ask. My ask is, if the crossing is your home, would you consider making a year-end gift? That we believe that God is bringing us the largest opportunity that we've ever had. And so some of you, you give on a regular basis that you've been given here for years. Some of you, this will be the first time you have to give to the cause of Christ will be through this. And so we're going to do that together. So we'll receive our Christmas offering throughout the month of December that you can give whenever you want to, and you just mark that on the envelopes. And then the last thing is we are 12 days away from our Christmas services. So we have six identical Christmas services on Friday and Saturday, Friday night the 23rd at 5 and 7. And then on the 24th, Christmas Eve, at 1, 3, 5, and 7. And so if you are able to avoid the 3 or the 5 on Christmas Eve, we know those will be the most full. And so if you're able to go to one of the other services, that will make sure that we have seats for everybody who's going to come. If you have a friend that you've invited who are coming, then you come then. And we hope you're going to invite a friend. In addition to that, we're going to be doing baptisms after every single service 
on Christmas. And so some of you become followers of Christ. And there is not a better time than Christmas than for you to, to be able to remember for the rest of your life that you were finally baptized. You surrendered that part of your life. And then on Sunday, December 25th, we'll not have services here but uh, we'll have an online service that um, you will be able to, to tune in and be a part of that. And so all of that, just a great, great month of Christmas stuff as we're doing. But today we're continuing our Christmas series, Unto Us. And Christmas, I think, is the most opinionated holiday of the year. I mean, we all have our opinions of what makes a perfect Christmas. You know, our opinions of, you know, what kind of food, the right kind of lights, fake tree, real tree. So I thought I'd just do a little survey to get us going today on, and let you vote by applause on what your opinion is. So we'll start with Christmas music. Okay, how many say that you should not play Christmas music until after Thanksgiving? Okay. Now, how many say Christmas music is good any time of year? You know, you ought to be able to play any time of year, okay? Christmas spirit all year long. Okay, so gifts, gifts. Now, how many of you say that you cannot open gifts until Christmas Day? Christmas Day, gift opening. That was my family. How many say Christmas Eve or the few days before? Okay. Obviously, you have kids in your family, and so you kind of bend to them. Okay, wrapping paper or gift bags. How many of you say it needs to be wrapping paper? Okay. Um, how many would say gift bags? That's all the men in the room right there. Okay, guys, we got to stick together on this one. Well, we all have different opinions on Christmas, and in Jesus' time, everyone had a different opinion on the coming of the Messiah and what that would look like. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah writes a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And he writes it during this time when Israel was in trouble. And here's what he says in Isaiah 9-6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when the people heard this prophecy, knowing that this was about the coming of the Messiah, that they heard this, this part where it says the government will be on his shoulders. And they were expecting a king. They were expecting the Messiah would be this king that would overthrow the oppressive government and bring justice and mercy, that he would be this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, that he would bring wisdom and power and everlasting kingdom. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to, to Matthew chapter 2 because we're going to kick into this next um, message in this Unto Us series that the Christmas story, it takes place in the midst of the, the backdrop of a political struggle that we're coming out of, as in our country, out of one of the most difficult political seasons of our lifetimes. But no matter your political party or your political opinion, what makes our country great is the peaceful transition. That every four years, those who are in office allow a vote to be taken, and then they will step aside for the newly elected administration. Now, sometimes there's pranks that, that certain administrations pull on the next administration. Usually, the outgoing president will write a letter to the incoming president. But for 240 years, it has been a peaceful process. Well, in Jesus' time, the transition of power was full of bloodshed and war. When Jesus was born, King Herod was the king of Judea during that time. And um, when Herod's father died, 
He was appointed as the new king, and his first act was to throw a party in the palace. And so Herod throws this party in the palace, and he invites all the advisors and all the people who are close to his father, and he had them all killed. That's when he was 25 years. That's how he took over this new kingdom. It's what Herod was. He was called Herod the Great because he was a builder. He built these extraordinary things. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. He built numerous port cities and aqueducts, extraordinary palaces, um, strategic military forts. He was very smart, very talented, politically astute, and ambitious. But his power, it came from Rome. That Rome was, was the one who directed everything because it was part of the Roman Empire. Do you remember when you were in high school, you studied Julius Caesar? You remember that whole story of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar declared himself that he was the, the dictator for life. He just declared that for himself. No more votes. I'm just the dictator for life. Well, his Senate concluded that the only answer to that was to assassinate him. And so in 44 B.C., 60 senators conspired together, and they killed him in the Senate. Remember, Brutus is the one who said, oh, it's okay to go ahead and come to the Senate. Everything will be okay. When he gets there, they kill him. Well, when he dies, his nephew Octavius, who would eventually become Caesar Augustus, his nephew Octavius and Mark Antony decide that they are going to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. So they go out to destroy everyone who is part of this plot to kill him. Well, eventually Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony are going to come to a head because there was only room for one king in Rome. And Mark Antony, um, King Herod decided that he was going to align himself with Mark Antony. And Mark Antony had a famous wife. Her name was Cleopatra. And so oftentimes King Herod would throw these incredible parties at his, his palace and he would invite Cleopatra and Mark Antony to come and be there. Well, as Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony became more and more powerful, there was this civil war that broke out between the two of them. And in the midst of this civil war, unfortunately for Herod, he supported the wrong guy. And Mark Antony was almost immediately defeated, and Caesar Augustus becomes the first emperor of Rome. Well, Herod, King Herod, knowing that his life is now in danger because he supported the wrong guy, he decides to do something that turns out to be this politically brilliant move. He gets on a boat, and he sails to, to Caesar Augustus. And when he gets to the island that Caesar Augustus is on, he gets out and he says, I have come to see the emperor of the Roman Empire. Well, everybody's looking at him like he's an enemy of the state. Well, finally, he gets in to see Caesar Augustus, and he, he has this speech for Caesar Augustus. He brags to Caesar Augustus. He boasts to him about his loyalty to Mark Antony. He goes, you know that I've been loyal to Mark Antony. He then pledged his loyalty. He says, I pledge my loyalty to you. And because of that, Augustus was so impressed that not only does he allow him to remain the king of Judea, he also gives him Samaria as well. And so Herod is the king of the entire Jewish nation. Herod is this Jewish king, if you will. But the thing that got Herod in trouble was his obsession with power. It was this obsession that would to hold on to his power, and he was paranoid about anyone around him. Herod had 10 wives and 43 children, and his favorite wife, her name was Miriam. 
just favorite wife. And Miriam, that she wanted to make sure that her son was the next one to become king. And Herod was suspicious of her, of trying to plot something. So he had her killed, his favorite wife. And just to be safe, he had her mother killed as well. Got rid of his mother-in-law. Some of you guys like this guy. So <laughs> rid of her. He killed several of his sons who he thought were plotting to take over. Even on his deathbed, he killed one of his sons. And at the point of Matthew chapter 2, Herod is about 70 years old. And he's, he's close to death. He has probably a kidney disease, maybe syphilis, we don't know. But he's very, very sick. And he's trying to consolidate his power. And he gets this disturbing news. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, you remember who thought he was king of the Jews. We saw his star and it rose and um, we saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, these Magi, we sometimes call them wise men. We don't know how many there were. That we always think of it as three magi because there was three gifts, but there might have been three. There might have been 33. We don't know. But here's what's interesting about magi. Magi were the highest ranking political and religious advisors in Persia. And part of their job was to predict and establish a new king. So now you understand why this next verse is so disturbing. Here's what it says. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. With this background that I've just given you, you now understand why the whole city is disturbed. History tells us that Herod had this secret police that monitored the people. He would monitor what people said about him and what, thought, what they thought about him. He would monitor, he would make sure that there was no protest. He would prohibit that. That anyone that was an opponent, he would either have them removed by force or he'd have them killed. He had a bodyguard unit. Herod had a bodyguard unit of 2,000 soldiers to protect him. So you can understand when he's disturbed, why everyone else is disturbed because of what he might do with his power. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. This is a, this is a prophecy that, that comes out of the book of Micah. And every Jewish person would have known about this prophecy. Every Jewish leader would have known about this prophecy. So Herod's asking, okay, tell me about this. And he says, um, that, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So all of this is there. So I'm guessing that uh, as Herod called these people in, they are scared to death because they don't know what's going to do as all of these religious leaders come out to see this. And he hears this prophecy about the, what's going to happen in Bethlehem. Verse 7. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the, look at this, house. He's no longer in a stable. Jesus is probably between one and two years old at this point. 
It says, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Now, this word worship for us, we make this word synonymous with singing in church. That's kind of how we think of worship, but that's not what this word means. It's not what this word means. Worship is recognizing the presence of someone that causes you awe. And then it's doing whatever you need to do to submit your life to them. So these very wealthy, very powerful men drop to their knees and they worship Jesus. Well, going on, verse 11, it says, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, probably less than a year from that point. And so was fulfilled um, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Herod had spent his entire life trying to hold on to power. Herod had spent his entire life out of trying to control the outcomes, and even when he bet on the wrong leader in Rome, he figured out a way to hold on to power, to, con to control that outcome as well. So look in verse 16, it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that they had learned from the Magi, and that's exactly what happened. Some terrible morning, his soldiers went into the town of Bethlehem, and they went to every single house, and they pulled out any boy who looked like he was that age, and they killed him, and they killed any family member who got into the way. And Bethlehem was probably a pretty small town. This is probably somewhere between 20 and 30 boys that were killed on that day. Profoundly painful. The birth of Jesus would become profoundly painful for these families. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so you see, you see this, this dichotomy between King Herod and this new king. Who is coming? This one that had been predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Mary and Joseph would have passed right by Herod's palace on their way to Bethlehem. When they went to Bethlehem to go for the census, they would have passed right by Herod's palace. I actually saw this palace when I was in Israel a few years ago. It sits on top of a hill that's about 90 feet tall. It's extraordinary. It covers about 45 acres of land, just the palace here, and there is no detail that is undone. It is just extraordinary, and that day it would have been completely covered. There would have been a covering over this entire palace, and there was vast caves and aqueducts to hold water. It had a 200-acre area that was gardens and pools, that this was actually the largest pool in the entire world. And here's King Herod, five miles away from where Jesus is born in his palace, and he's trying to hold on to power while the king of kings 
is lying in a feeding trough. And here's where I think this has to do with us. Is I think that there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. That whole idea of surrendering our life to someone else just does not come natural to us. And so what is your story going to be in relationship to the king? Is your story going to be a story of resistance, kind of resisting this new king? Or is your story going to be a story of worship? Will it be about trying to hold on to your own kingdom and your own power? Or will you be a person who has surrendered everything to Jesus? Fast forward about 60 years. And the Apostle Paul will write to the Christians living in Rome and to this powerful political city that was kind of the hub of the entire world. And he'll write to the Christians there in Rome. And Paul was another one who tried to get rid of Jesus. That when he was Saul, he wanted to go after Christians and the church because he was threatened by Christianity until Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And 60 years later, he will write this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, you see, at just the right time. See, when everything had kind of come into place, when God had all of the powers in place that he wanted them and everything was just right at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Paul is reflecting on this bigger story. When other kings are trying to hold on to their power, Jesus comes with an entirely different agenda at just the right time. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus. That's the hope that we have, that God came to rescue us when we were powerless and when we are in our sins and Christ died for you. He died for you. And here's the message of Christmas. Talked about this last week because the baby who came to be with you is now the man who died for you. The baby who came to be with you became the man who died for you. So the question for you right now is what, how do you respond to the king? How are you going to respond to the king? You have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. In the political world, it always forces you to make a decision. In Jesus' time, you were either for Herod or you were against Herod. But the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish was, was not one where he would do whatever he could do to hold on to his power. He would lay down his life and give up his power. And because of that... Jesus becomes accessible to you and me. So what is our response? Is our response to this, this response of resistance, trying to hold on to whatever we're trying to hold on to? Or is it one where we're finally going to go, because of what he's done for us, we're finally going to worship him, which means I'm giving everything to him. I'm laying down my life for him. When was the last time that you worship Jesus. So there's a story in Matthew chapter 14. Don't have time to go into it, but Jesus is walking on the water and he comes to the disciples and they're scared to death. They think it's a ghost. 
And Peter says, well, if it's really you, let me come out on the water. And Jesus says, come on. And he begins to sink. And Jesus rescues him, and they get into the boat. And it's the first time the disciples worship Jesus. It's the first time. It's the first time that they worship Jesus. Because they were finally face-to-face with God. So when's the last time that you truly worshiped Jesus? See, when the Magi came face to face with Jesus, these powerful political figures, they bowed down and they worshiped him. Because worship at his core, it's acknowledging who Jesus is, and it's a surrender your life to him. That you have to decide who Jesus is. Because once you do that, true worship is a natural response. So how do we do this? How do we worship? What does worship mean? Look at the scripture in Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul will go on and he will say this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what does worship look like? It's when we go, okay, God, I'm, I'm given all of me. I'm surrendering it all to you. It's all yours. I'll tell you, one of the things that, that I do on a daily basis, but especially on Sunday before I get ready to come here, is I just get on my knees and I say, God, I'm surrendering everything to you. And one of the things that I say every single morning is I'm praying for you and I'm praying about this service. Say, God, I, I don't need this, but I need you. I, I don't need all this, but I need you. Now, I need to be able to give all of me to all of you. So I, I get that some people are skeptical about Jesus. See, I think the real question is not if you believe that the baby born in Bethlehem was the real king. I think the question is, is he your king? Is he your king? Because sometimes we want just enough of Jesus to keep us out of hell and just enough Jesus to get us into heaven, but not too much of Jesus that it changes anything about our lifestyle. So when was the last time you got Christmas right, that you got it right, that you worshiped him? My life, God, it's yours. I surrender all of this. It's yours. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus who came, who died. We thank you that this baby born in a manger who came to be with us became the man who died for us. And so, God, we pledge our lives to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.